This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York, and the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Welcome to a special transformative principle slash cyber traps episode. Um, I am excited today to have Dr. Joaquina Cancam on the program. She's an expert in youth protection, compliance, and risk management, but her practical experience has made her a leader in understanding the needs of youth serving organizations. In addition to being an educator in K 12 and higher education, Joaquina has presented at several national association conferences and participated as a panelist in several discussions regarding youth. Now, this is a podcast that we're going to do on the Cybertraps podcast and on Transformative Together, Transformative Principle Together, because it is a topic that covers both of these areas. And I just want to remind regular listeners of Transformative Principle about the Cybertraps podcast, which is all about the use and misuse of digital technology. And for those educators who are in the Cybertraps audience, I also want to remind you of my other podcast, Transformative Principle. So, uh, Dr. Joaquina, welcome to Transformative Principle and Cybertraps. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today because one of the things that is a passion of mine is making sure that we are protecting kids while we are serving them. And it's an important thing that gets talked about a lot. And especially on cyber traps, we talk about that all the time. But I want to talk to you about uh, about your work in this area and how you got started in it and and what that means. So tell us a little background first to get us started. Okay, I started as a 
teacher and where I taught almost everything between pre-K and eighth grade. Then I became a campus administrator. After that, I transitioned into higher education where I taught at two different community colleges before becoming a state specialist at a land-grant university where I provided youth programming around the state of Texas. That got me into what I'm doing today in the worst way possible. We had several incidences where it got to the point where every year I would say, after I would end my summer camp, I would say to my supervisor, I think we're going to be, you know, we put ourselves in a bad position. We could be sued. Like all I saw was lawsuits and liabilities. And they would say, no, everything was fine. It was great. It was wonderful. And I would say, no, something's not right. Something's missing. And every year I would stress to the individuals working the importance of supervision. And I stressed it because I knew it wasn't a part of the policy of the university. Nowhere did it mention supervision as in most places. And my last camp, it was so bad. We lost a kid at the museum. We had kids walking in the middle of the street by themselves at nighttime. Only way they were spotted was because the custodian noticed the logo on their shirt and told them that they were, she was going to tell me. Um, we left the kid in the cafeteria for over 40 minutes. And that last night, mayhem broke out where kids were running up and down the hallways, smashing bananas in the each other's faces. We caught two kids of the same sex in bed together, all while the adults who were responsible and assigned to provide supervision stayed in their rooms and slept. Wow. And this is where the real life experiences lead to people saying, this is not right. We got to do something about this. And so I'm glad that you decided to do something. And so tell us about the work that you do now. The work that I do now is based upon that. It's, it was getting frustrated with the system where I decided this is enough. I created a class in my PhD program. I had one semester, so I created an independent study called Auditing Risk Management and Compliance to audit the university system. When I audited the system, I noticed that the system had a lot of inconsistencies. So I said, well, I'm going to take this a step beyond and let me just see what other colleges, universities and youth serving organizations are doing around the country. That led me to a discovery of two things. The first thing was that no one, no two entities were doing the same thing when it came to youth protection. So there's no standard. Mm -hmm. The second thing is um, that there should be certain things in place if you want to consider your program ineffective. And the reason why there is no standard and there's this breakdown is because the law, there's one law in this country designed to protect children from abuse and neglect. And that law only requires youth serving organizations to, one, conduct a criminal background check of all individuals working with minors, and two, to provide mandatory reporter training. And it primarily focuses only on um, sexual abuse and not any other areas of youth protection. So that was the breakdown. Yeah. So let's let's dig into that for just a minute. And this is something where Good intended people or well-intended people put something in place hoping that it does something, and then other people do the bare minimum because it's an onerous thing to do, and that makes total sense. So the law you're talking about is CAPTA, which is Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, correct? 
Yes. Okay, so tell us, uh, it requires these two things, and why aren't people doing more than just those two basic things? And why are they only focusing on sexual abuse? That's because we typically do only what we know how to do. Now, when it comes to organizations, who's interpreting the laws? Attorneys. Are attorneys capable of interpreting the law as it is? Sure they are. Do they have a background in working with children? Absolutely not. That's the breakdown. So we interpret the law as is and say, well, we're going to put these things the law tells us to do in place. So we should be good. And oftentimes I hear in this business, our procedures are good enough. Our attorneys looked at them. We're fine. We covered what the law required us to do. We've done our part. It's enough. But then you have incidences like Larry Nassar, where you have this abuser Working with kids in multiple organizations, doing things that are unspeakable to children, and some of them, in like Simone Biles' case, not even aware of what's actually taking place to them. And they're doing it for years and years and years. And because there is no system in place other than to provide a criminal background check and to provide mandatory reporter training, they're allowed to work with these children over and over again without anyone intervening and saying, hey, there's a problem here. Yeah. And that's when it becomes too much. Yeah. Well, and and let's take that that example that you shared with the United States gymnastics team and how the the doctor was was abusing the girls who were on that team and nobody steps in and says anything even though many people are mandatory reporters. What is it that prevents people from saying something when the opportunity presents itself? Well, I, I'm I'm just going to go off of the president of Michigan State at the time because she actually had criminal charges pending against her all up until, I think, May 2020. So for four or five years, she had these charges pending against her. And the reason why she had the charges pending against her was because she should have reported it, didn't. And I believe it was to protect the image, what she thought at the time, of the institution. You know, there's a case right now in Florida where the school district, where the parents are asking for even the superintendent to resign after a school board member resigned last week, simply because the school district, when there was assault that took place on the campus, they made it seem as if there was nothing taking place, everything had been resolved, it's all over with, and then the assault took place again, and those two incidences are connected. So because we want to, I guess, preserve our reputation. We want to preserve the name. We want to kind of hurry it up and make it go away instead of taking the necessary steps to get to the root issue of it and to put a system in place that would provide a clear path of accountability in the event that something like this occurs again. Yeah. And that is uh, in Loudoun County, Virginia, that uh, that school board resigned and the superintendent oh, is getting pressure. Was it? Yeah. Mm. So I'm putting a link to that in the show notes here so people can can check to check that out. And it's it's really so you said two things. One, they're trying to protect the image. And two, our attorneys have read over it. So therefore, we're good because we don't think we can get sued for this. And that's a pretty low bar, Joaquina of whether or not you make a decision, right? Whether or not we can get sued, but people make that decision all the time. And how do we help people make a better decision that's beyond whether or not we get sued? It's actually, this is the right thing to do. At this point, 
I ask myself every day. <laughs> I really do because, again, I often hear our measures are good enough. Um, we don't need this. We got it taken care of. And it's boggling my mind how every other day you you hear about a story in the news, but the people that's empowered to actually make a decision to do something have disconnected themselves from it so much where they do not know state laws. They do not know their organization's policies and procedures. They do not know how many kids are being involved in these programs on their campuses. They do not know what's taking place, who's responsible. So when there's mayhem or a big scandal, everybody in the organization is scrambling to figure out who's who and what's happening because nobody has created a clear path of accountability and nobody knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to figure it out at the end when there should have been path in place from the very beginning. Yeah. That's the problem. And and so they're pointing their fingers at other people saying this person should have done something. This person should have done something. And, and they all, really don't know. Yeah. And they nobody, really don't know. nobody knows. So that that brings us to the point of the importance of the people at the very top having say in how these things happen. And I want to refer people to Richard Shell's interview uh, where he talked about his book, The Conscience Code, about how to be a person of conscience and know the right thing to do and then take the action even when it's um, – when it's possible that you may be harmed from that, that's uh, transformativeprinciple.org slash episode 449. So definitely check that out uh, because that's a good, a good support of how you know when to take, take the necessary steps to make this happen. So how do the, we know the people at the top of the organization set the culture for everything. So how do we encourage them to set the right culture and do the right thing in these situations? Education, you know, and I, I, I'm an educator. I'm a lifelong learner. I really love to read and all these things. And what I've discovered as a reading teacher is that most people don't want to read. They mm-hmm. don't want the education. Even though we're in education, we are against it for ourselves. Yep. And right now is just generating awareness and providing actionable steps that people can take today to get themselves more involved in the youth protection decision-making process because it boggles my mind, Jethro, that if the consequences of a scandal related to something, especially like child sexual abuse, would affect me the most, why would I leave the decision-making process in the hands of someone else? That, to me, doesn't make any sense because I'm allowing someone essentially to dictate my fate. They're making all the plays, making all the decisions that affect me. They're still going to be in place after I'm in the newspaper. They're still going to have their jobs after I'm terminated. They're still going to have their insurance when my mental health is I'm going through trauma because Mm -hmm. I had a public termination that affected not only me, but my family as well. And I cannot understand for the life of me, how people could just say, oh, it's no big deal. We let our lawyers deal with it. It's, it's, it's handled. So yeah. my goal right now is to educate, provide awareness, provide actionable steps that will allow you to even look at your own practices quickly to see maybe we do need a little assistance. Maybe we do need someone to come in and give us a, a run through real quick so that we can see what we don't see. Mm-hmm. So that's my ultimate goal. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. The education piece is so important and it's just the, the, really the tip of the iceberg, but 
it, but it takes care of so much. When you know how to act and know what the right thing to do is, then you you can stop those things from happening in the future. And this is one of those little things that people often don't think of. And I, I appreciate what you said about how we in education don't like to learn. We often think we learned that before. We don't need to mm-hmm. do it again. You know, we, we had that training last year. We don't need to go through it again this mm-hmm. year. And part of that is because our training, our way of training really stinks and it's That's no good. On it. Yeah. That's it. It's one mode. We, and I, again, that's one of those questions as an educator, we teach differentiate, uh, differentiation and we want our teachers to do it. We want them to address learning styles. We want them to address mm-hmm. preferences. But when it comes to the real world and adults, okay, we're just going to give you this one way and you should know it. And we're going to give this to you every single time. And we expect for you to be happy with it, know it and love it. And we're done with it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's quick and easy. Yep. And it is. And that's what our schools have have moved to for students and definitely what they've been doing for years for adults. When the pandemic hit, we just went all the way back to all of that easy for teachers to dispense, which I totally get because it was stressful time, but we could have done so much better. It was the perfect time to make some different choices about personalization and about doing things differently. And instead, we went back to the old way of doing things, the uh, one person stage on the stage kind of approach. And it's just not good for anybody. Nobody likes that. Adults don't like you it. Don't kids don't like it. And yet we still persist in doing that. So if you were to train a school district or a school on how to deal with these issues now, how would you approach this in a, uh, and what model could you share with people to know how to train on these types of things that's differentiated for everybody? Well, I would, First, start with a good understanding of what the law is, because that's the key, is when you're teaching a a new content area, a new topic, you define that content area, you provide examples, you demonstrate them, you give them a graphic organizer so they can clearly understand what you're talking about from the very beginning. And then just like in class, you provide scenarios to check for understanding. Mm -hmm. So... I would definitely start with understanding youth protection laws and the risk management and compliance parts that go along with it for education educators. And I definitely would include real world, real life examples of what to do in these situations, how you should handle this in the event that it occurs. And then I would follow it up with some type of SOP document, some type of um, handout that they can take with them and work on and fill it out and keep it with them close because this should become a part of the culture of the organization. Youth protection is not just something you talk about once at the beginning of the year and then you close the chapter on it until next year. This should be a campaign, a marketing and communications approach to this where you are reinforcing these messages over and over again. What is the organization's stance on this? What do we believe? What will we tolerate? What we have zero tolerance for? What will we do in the event that we suspect any abuse and neglect? That should be a part of the campaign that is marketed to individuals, not only teachers. And this is the part that we mess up on as well. We teach teachers how to report, but the people that need to report it are the kids. Mm -hmm. And we don't even uh, bother to teach them how to report to the state. We don't teach them how to report to the organization. Why? Because they don't matter. 
at mm. the end of the day. So not only should you provide marketing information to the teachers, but to the parents and the students as well. Each child should know how to report abuse that's occurring in their own lives. And if we don't start teaching that, we're doing these children a disservice. Yeah, because they're the ones who know better than anybody when they're being abused or neglected. And that is a really powerful statement because immediately people start thinking, well, then a kid could use this improperly and could report incorrectly to accuse someone and damage their life. And that's that's a very real thing that could happen. That is and something, it has happened. Yep, and it does happen. So it's not like it's out of the realm of possibility. But the difference that you're talking about, though, is that if we are open and clear about what abuse and neglect is, and we tell people when and how to report that, there are going to be some fake 911 calls, which there are, but people will learn pretty quickly that this is not something that you joke around about and that you report it when it's appropriate. I mean, we still deal with fake 911 calls, but that's not nearly as big a deal as it was after you get caught doing it, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to put it that way. Exactly. So I, exactly. I think that that's really good advice. And it's something that we, we think about all the stuff we have to do and it becomes overwhelming to think of, about. And in, what's your response to that? This is, this is too much. Another thing to put on my plate as an adult or as a teacher or as whatever, what's your response to that? You know, I, I just think about it like this as a teacher, you know, you have your lesson plans, you have your testing requirements, especially if you're in a testing grade, testing grades are, the, you know, so hard. Teaching is the hardest job I've ever had, honestly. You know, you really do have a lot, but just like anything else that's new, it only gets better over time. And if it becomes routine and a part of the culture that this is what who we are, we are here to protect children first and foremost, then it doesn't become a burden because it becomes second nature. And it only becomes a burden when you pick it up and forget about it and then pick it up and forget about it. And, you know, if you make it routine and it's a part of who you are at the core, then it's not a burden because it's a part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've said many times on this podcast is that as soon as something else is your first priority, the other thing you thought was your priority is no longer your priority. And so one of the things that I've said numerous times is that in schools, if we say safety is the priority, then that means that learning is not the priority and that we have to recognize is a reality. You can't have multiple priorities as much as we try to. And so the way that I understand this is that learning how to be safe and to protect yourself from abuse and neglect is a really important skill for kids to learn. And that doesn't need to be the priority if we're doing it correctly. So if so, I always say like when we did this, any of these active shooter drills or anything, fire drills, when those are the priority that those are done, then learning stops becoming the priority because those are what we focus on. And I would say that with this situation, we need to integrate, like you said, that learning about how to be safe and protect yourself and get out of bad situations, that needs to be part of what we're what we're teaching kids. That needs to be part of how they start to identify themselves when they're in a bad situation. Because here's the thing, those abusive relationships start in whatever age they start in, 
and they can continue throughout that person's entire life. And they can become. They will continue. They will continue. The study just came out. Okay, let's hear it. The other day, and this, and I just posted on my LinkedIn account. The story came out saying that it, the, um, the effects of child abuse are depression and anxiety and a loss of stable relationship. Those children who have suffered from various forms of abuse, not just sexual abuse, tend to have more episodes of depression and anxiety, and they do not have the ability to form intimate relationships simply because they have a loss of trust of those that are around them because those that were around them that were there to protect them did not. Mm -hmm. So what we have to remember as educators, if a child doesn't feel safe, they're not going to learn first and foremost. So safety is always first when it comes to education, because if I don't feel comfortable, if I don't feel um, like I'm safe or in a safe place or in a safe environment or somebody's going to make fun of me or somebody's going to hit me or somebody's going to touch me inappropriately, do you think I can learn? I cannot. It's impossible for me to do so. So that's not going to happen. So safety is first and foremost in every situation that involves children. So it's really important for us then to address this early and often and to talk about it regularly and not to not to stigmatize the conversation, but to stigmatize the behavior so that yes. people don't do the behavior, but that we can mm-hmm. talk openly about it. And when you when you're not feeling safe and when you're feeling like somebody's hurting you in some way that you can talk about it. And there are a lot of times where even unintentional actions make people feel uncomfortable. And if you can know how to talk about it, you can actually do something about it. And that's what I think is, is really important because these, the effects of abuse are going to impact your future relationships with your spouse, with your partners, with your kids, with your fellow coworkers, with everything, with your future bosses, your future subordinates. I mean, these things are going to affect you for the rest of your life. And so if we can just prevent them from ever happening, that'll make things a lot better. So my final question to you today, Joaquina, is what is one thing that a person can do to be a transformative leader like you? Oh, my God, like me. If there's something that really bothers you and something you just cannot let go, that's your calling. That's, that's your purpose. Follow that. Take, don't 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 let that slip away. Don't put it on the shelf. Don't put it on the back burner. If there's something that really you cannot understand why this is happening the way it's happening, seek to discover that. Yeah. Very, that. very good. Well, I want to refer people also to your uh, website, which is School of theschoolofsolutions.com. People can uh, check you out there, uh, follow you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Looks like you're all over the place. So uh, Joaquina, thanks so much for being part of this combined episode of Transformative Principle and Cybertraps today. Thank you so much for having me and I hope to hear from you soon.
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.